Welcome to Lead. I'm Jordan Ormont, talent partner, Menlo Ventures. Lead is a podcast for next generation entrepreneurs that focuses on best practices around leadership, culture, and building world-class teams. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Jeff Curl. Few people are as qualified to talk about building high-performing teams and setting company culture as Jeff. Jeff is the co-founder and CEO of Stance, a current Menlo Ventures portfolio company, which is his fourth startup. As a former VC and angel investor, Jeff has invested in over 30 startups, including Uber. Since starting Stance, Jeff has assembled a powerhouse of celebrity personalities around his brand, ranging from recording artists like Jay-Z, Rihanna, and Big Sean, to well-known athletes like James Harden and Dwayne Wade. Stance has been recognized as the official sock of the NBA and Major League Baseball. Now eight years into its journey, the company has sold over 15 million pairs of socks to date and has raised over $100 million in venture capital funding. Stance has built an iconic brand that stands for celebrating human originality and self-expression. And who would have thought all this would have been possible in a category like socks? It's a testament to the kind of culture Jeff has built around his company and the values which are deeply held by every employee he's hired. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the, the time today. I was excited to, to connect live with you. Um, you know, I was thinking back last night uh, as I was thinking about this interview, and, you know, I think we met in 2011 uh, in the backcountry of uh, British Columbia through a, a ski trip that one of our mutual friends had put together. And at the time, you were uh, running Skullcandy, a company that you, uh, that you started. And when I was thinking about who I wanted to interview uh, around culture, you're actually the first person who came to mind. And I think a, a main reason for that is I've always admired uh, kind of your holistic view on life, both you know personally and, and professionally, and the marathon approach you've taken to building your companies. And when I reflect back to 15 years ago when I moved out to Silicon Valley, you know, it was uh, a badge of honor to grind and to work 24-7. And uh, that was definitely my mentality uh, in my, my early to mid-20s. And yeah, it took some time to evolve and to understand that you could get the same results without, you know, working 24-7. And uh, it's something I just always admired about you and, and how you've just the philosophy that you've taken to, you know, building, you know, teams to win. And well, probably, probably just like you, um, you know, I had a company back through the mid 2000s and um, that's really where I was in the grind mode a hundred percent. And same as you, I felt like it was a badge of honor to do it. And we were lucky uh, in that three years in HP bought us in an all cash deal. But as I reflected back on it, I was sort of asking myself the question like, geez, if we had lived more balanced lives, would we have got to the same place in three and a half or four or four and a half years? Did the hustle to get there so quickly really make a difference? And when I looked back, maybe the growth rate you know, did make a difference, but I'd also say the experience, the people that I worked with, what it felt like to go to work every day would have probably been better if we would have done it in a more balanced way. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what led me to, geez, let's try it in a balanced way. And then the original founder of Skull Candy, when I was asking him why he 
did headphones. He said that, um, you know, he had a company that he had sold to one of the ski companies. It was a snowboard binding company. And um, he was trying to figure out what to do next. And he's like, ah, I think I'll go get a job. And he loved fly fishing, skateboarding, and snowboarding. So he went and bought all the magazines for those things. And he just looked at all the ads and then went to the websites of all of those companies and started applying for jobs. Got a job uh, designing fly fishing reels um, out in like Vermont or New York, somewhere upstate New York, and um, ended up patenting a couple of fly fishing reels for these innovative ideas he had. And um, I was like, wow, here's a guy that would never work on something that wasn't his passion. Mm. Like he wouldn't even consider it. There were, it was never about the money. It was like, I need to go do something that I love. And I think kind of watching him actually pull it off uh, was really what got me thinking, okay, I, I got to live that way. Yeah. And, and what was, what was the catalyst for stance? Um, what, a, what an interesting category uh, to target and to build a business in the sock business. Uh, what was, what was the catalyst for that business? Yeah. So when Skull Candy started, the primary headphone competitors were Sennheiser, Bose, and Sony. And they were all positioned very similarly, homogenized, black and silver. It was all about sound quality. And I made a reference call on Skull Candy. And believe it or not, it was to this buyer at a retail named um, Musicland. And they were like a CD shop in every shopping mall. And I think they had like 800 doors at the time. It was very large. This was, geez, this had to be 2003-ish. And uh, I called the buyer and he had been buying headphones from Musicland for 20 years. And I said, hey, why do you like Skull Candy? And he said, well, I'll always buy Skull Candy. And Skull Candy was brand new at the time. But he's like, I'll always buy Skull Candy because it's different from the other three the one that stands out. And so that really like left a mark on me and the idea that when you're doing a new category, you have to be completely contrasted to all the other incumbents for the buyer to want to bring you in. And so as we started thinking about other categories, we looked at jewelry, we looked at luggage. There were several categories that we thought could be interesting. In the back of my mind, it was always, geez, how are we going to look different than all the incumbents? How are we going to really stand out, not just visually, but also in substance? And so, as you can imagine, seven years ago, the sock aisle at most stores was black, white, blue, gray, multi-packs, maybe some wild argyle socks at the bottom. And coming from Skull Candy, where we had done headphones for... Durant and Hardin and Snoop Dogg and Metallica and, and we'd figured out how to put art on headphones it was like, geez, it looked like a blank canvas. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons that socks looked attractive. And you know, tell me a bit about, you know, day one at, uh, at Stance or, you know, your, your first week with the founding team. And I know culture and, and core values is you know, very important to you. Uh, and how were they originally created 
uh, at stance? You know, how did you go about it? And we'd love to hear kind of the steps that you took to, to, to put it all together. So I think culture and core values is always happening. It's just a matter of whether you actually acknowledge it and steer it. So you can ignore it, but it's developing on its own. So in the case of stance, I wanted to go a little faster. I had already had a successful outcome. And I knew if I started in my garage that it would take a long time to sort of get the flywheel going. So I actually hired several people sort of on the first day, um, and they became my co-founders. Um, and there were four of them, uh, sort of for each key area of the business. And we just started working together. We actually, Skullcandy had a little office in San Clemente, and we took up shop in a basement room. We called it the bunker. It was about a 10 by 30 room. We all had desks in there together. That was day one. And we worked together like that for probably a year. And then we hired one or two, three more, three more people, I think. Eventually we had seven maybe, but a pretty small lean team, angel funded. And, you know, we, we shared values. We just hadn't articulated them. There was a way that we worked together already. Um, and we realized that if we were going to start hiring people, that we would need to put some definitions on them. And, and look, I think the core values can be anything that is real and authentic, um, meaning there's probably 100 great values or more you could choose from. The important part is that you acknowledge them, you put a stake in the ground, you say, this is what we believe in. And I think the articulation of the values really matters. So you could take a generic value like, integrity or empowerment or whatever, which is probably those two things are in like 400 of the fortune 500 mission statements. Right. Um, but if you can define those things in a unique way that is real and authentic to your business, um, then it can enact, it can actually work at the case of stance. Um, you know, we, I think, we operated without articulating them for probably one or two years. And then we got to the hiring process and we're like, we got to have values. And our five were entrepreneurship, creativity, performance, personal responsibility, and gratitude. And so on the surface, they're quite generic. But if you talk about entrepreneurship and what it means to us, we tell people, hey, your personal constitution is creative and resourceful. We say your savvy approach allows you to get things done with little to no oversight and limited resources. And you have a passion for learning and continuous improvement and can come up to speed quickly on any topic. So now we put a boundary. And when we say entrepreneurship, that's what we mean. So you can imagine now when you're doing a one-on-one -on -one with anyone in the company, it's really easy to say, do you live the value of entrepreneurship as we've articulated it? and so on and so forth for each of our five values. I think the other thing that we've spent a lot of time on is integrating the values into the work processes. An example of this might be our fifth value, which is gratitude. And the way that we would define that is we say, you are humble in your communications and treatment of others. You are quick to acknowledge the help and contribution of others. You know that your success is not contingent on the failure of others, and you're quick to give credit for results and slow to take it. We call that high impact, low fingerprint. And 
So now we've got this value, we've defined it, and we say, how do we put that to work? And it could be, geez, every time in customer service, when we speak with one of our suppliers, customers, sales reps out in the field, we're going to send a personal thank you note. And now, you, and, and explain why we're grateful for that person and that interaction. And now you've taken a value and you've actually converted it into a work process. And now it becomes part of the fabric of the business. And the more you can do that and layer those things on throughout your business processes, pretty soon the values are actually completely real and lived. Um, so I think that's the one thing we've done really well at Stance. Um, we how do you, have how do you, to find... And how do you think these core yeah. values have evolved over the years? And so you're two years in, for an example, how many employees were you at when you started to really articulate uh, core values for the business? And we were probably at we were probably at twelve to fifteen employees, and I think it's somewhere between twenty and thirty employees. The culture starts to become self reinforcing. So whatever it is, I mean, there are values there whether you've articulated them or not. And whatever they are, they start to propagate. People start to hire people that are like themselves. And whatever becomes the norm and the mores inside the four walls of the business, just it grows and continues. It's like a DNA strand. You've got this like core DNA and it starts replicating. So I think 10 to 20 people, believe it or not, is probably the right time to start articulating it and putting work into it. If you let it get to like 50 or 100, it's sort of you know, growing on its own in the wild. And you may or may not be able to wrangle it. And in the case of a big business, when you're thousands of employees and the culture becomes toxic, I think it's really hard to make it change. Yeah. And when you, when you think about your interview process, uh, you know, what do you guys do differently uh, to attract great talent, uh, but also also qualify the talent to make sure they are uh, a good fit within the within the system of stance. I think the first move we made that helped us was we set up shop in San Clemente. And I'm from the Bay Area. I was born in Walnut Creek, grew up there. My parents still live there. And I think the talent war is is real. <laughs> it's difficult and not going away anytime soon. I feel like we were sort of a mini Microsoft in the sense that um, I think Microsoft really benefited from being in Redmond for so long, particularly in the 80s and 90s, where they could recruit people out of the valley. And once you were there, there weren't too many other options to go to. So it was hard to get people to Redmond, but once you got them, they're staying there. And that's sort of how San Clemente is for us. It's hard to get people here, but once we get them, the turnover is really low. People love the lifestyle. So that move one was we actually got out of the valley. Our rent is like one-tenth the price of San Francisco. So we can have uh, a greater investment in our headquarters and the physical facilities, uh, less turnover, better retention, um, saves us money, um, and keeps great talent in the office. Um, so I think that geography for sure plays a role in our success. Um, our interview process is a little bit different as well. So I think most companies, and, and us included, we interview for skills and experience. And of course, the typical process is we get a resume and we search for 
other companies that are like-minded or other, um, you know, work experiences that would fit here. And we screen for that. And so in, in that sense, we're like every other business. We go through a standard interview process. Where we differ is once someone wants to, to hire someone in the company, um, they have to have a second interview with one of the original five employees. Uh, so I'm included in that. And for that second interview, we actually don't look at the resume. Wow. And the reason for this is we don't want to be biased by their work experience or their education. We really want to rely on understanding what it would feel like to work with this person. And my questions for this interview, I usually start with something like, hey, tell me everything about yourself starting with kindergarten. I want to hear how they tell their own life story. I want to hear about the challenges. I want to understand if they keep score. I want to understand how competitive they are or not um, and what it feels like to work with them. And then the other question that I might ask might have something to do with future. Just sort of like if you were in your ultimate pinnacle of your career, you know, final resting place, you had your dream job, what does that look like? And, you know, what, what steps do you think are required to get from where you're at today to where you want to be? And then that helps me understand if stance can be a place where they can grow and develop and how long of a fit we will be for their ambition level. Um, so these conversations are, are more about values. They're more about goals. They're more about life overlap. And more than anything, it's, it's like, what does it feel like? I love it when I can interview someone and they'll say something like, yeah, I mountain bike or I surf or I play basketball because then I want to go do that thing with them. Um, nothing's more revealing about what it feels like to work with someone than playing a game of basketball with them, right? It instantly shows, are they a team player? Are they selfish? Are they smart? Do they have good self-awareness? You can actually deduce a lot of things on the court, how frustrated do they get when they make a mistake? Um, how do they recover from the mistake? How long does it take them? How much risk do they take? Um, so I find when I can get someone out of the office, that's even more revealing. And depending on the position, I'll invest more time with the person, um, you know, in out of office context. And long and short of it is, I feel like when you just look at a resume, you've sort of abdicated your own decision-making to the person that hired them at their last employer, to the admissions counselor at the university. And maybe they did go to Stanford, right? And so you're so impressed with the fact that they went to this prestigious university that you hire them on that basis. But what you've really done then is just turned over your own decision-making to some college admissions counselor that was just reading an application, looking at some grades and a test score versus making your own determination about how they might fit in your business. So I'm always weary of, you know, bringing too much bias into the interview. I want to rely on my own heart and my own intuition. And the best way I can do that is to have very little information going into the interview. Yeah. 
When I when I think of Stan Seminar, I, I think about all of our interactions in the past. I, mean, I think you're a great communicator and and, uh, and very transparent in terms of how you feel about you know any situation that comes up. And would love to hear a little bit about your internal reviews within Stance, how they're conducted, how you give feedback to to top performers and underperformers as well. Because uh, I think it's a key it's a key part of you know building that tight culture within the organization. Yeah. So. A lot of my thinking on this happened on one of our backcountry snowboard trips. We were um, with a bunch of tech executives out in the backcountry, middle of December one year. And everyone was fretting over their end of year performance reviews with their employees. And so the discussion was like, you know, who's going to get the bonus? Oh, I hate these review processes. They show up with their brag sheets and I have to tell them that they really didn't accomplish everything they thought they did. And, you know, I send most of my employees home before Christmas, you know, probably disappointed because they were expecting more than what they got. And just overhearing the way that these conversations happen, it just didn't seem like it was productive. So my thought was, is you know, first of all, the idea of best practices in business is really a silly one because what best practices really means is what everyone else does. So it doesn't mean best. It actually means least original. <laughs> it means safest because everyone's doing it. It must be the right thing. It's groupthink. That's what best practice means in American business. So I'd like to think that the true best practice is original thought. And original thought means doing something different than everyone else. So with that in mind, and it's not to be contrarian just to be contrarian, it's we've mastered the basics. Can we do it in a better way for our people? So if we believe that most companies do an annual review process that ends up demoralizing their employees, making their managers anxious, do they really come back in January with a better workforce? Have they really optimized the spirit of encouragement and using compensation to reward the best people to get even better results? Probably not. So let's try something different. And the worst case is if we fail, we can always go back to what everyone else does. So it, it, without doing anything too radical, we said, let's put the performance review process in the one-on-one and let's make sure that we're doing one-on-ones every single month. And, you know, a lot of the, the things we do, we, we are inspired by other companies. I love the question out of the culture presentation at Netflix, which is sort of like in every one-on-one, ask your manager if they would rehire you today at the same pay rate, all things being equal, now that they completely know everything about you. If you think about the hiring process in companies, it's really challenging because most people only interview for two, three, four, five, six hours inside the company. And then they work at that company for two to five years. So it's sort of like going on a dinner date and then moving in with your partner for the next five years. Like that's a big jump that is. for a very little period of time to evaluate someone. And so 
long and short of it is, we've moved our performance review process into our monthly one-on-one. That means we can give raises or bonuses or new stock option grants at any time during the year when the performance is warranted. And I think the most important thing that it accomplishes is it closes the gap. If I do something great in January, I don't have to wait to December to brag to my boss that I did it. I actually can get rewarded in January or February. And most importantly, when we get to the end of the year and we're all hustling to make our numbers and finish out the year in a great way, we don't spend two weeks of our time in our two hour long closed door interviews you know, specifically going over the performance of every person because we've spread that out all during the year. Um, So that's our way of doing it. We still have a culture of accountability. We still consider the leadership of the company, the accountability partner of the people on their team. That hasn't changed at all. Um, But I feel like the end of the year, kick the can down the road, demoralize half your workforce going into January is not a best practice. It's a common practice and not a great one. Yeah. And and tell me about how you deal with underperformers. How much time do you give them to to shape up or or ship out? Uh, How do you interact? Well, actually, it's not an articulated value of ours, but I do preach it a lot. And it's just the idea of fairness. So... I don't think it's fair to blindside someone with a termination when they were never given feedback that their performance needed to change. I think that's lazy leadership, and I think it happens quite frequently, and it goes unchecked. So what we try and train our leaders to do is give the the critique along the way to try and help change the trajectory of the performance. And whether that requires one month or three months or six months, a lot of business plans take one, two or three years to play out. So it might not be fair to say, look, you've got three weeks to change um, depending on the role. But maybe it is fair to say, look, you have three months. And these are the results and and objectives that have to be clearly met three months from now. And if they're not, then we have to make a change. And I think that's a very fair conversation. At the end of three months, you can have um, a great conversation about whether those results were achieved or not. Um, We have had an example where we had one employee who had a number of mistakes and failures with other departments, with people that he worked with, and it it had become so bad that no one wanted to work with him. And so it was really causing a problem in the business. And I had gone to the leader and said, hey, you really need to put in some extra time with this particular employee because he sort of needs to atone for his sins and say he's sorry and get a lot better fast to regain the trust of the people he works with. And that conversation never happened. In fact, it got worse and worse to the point where finally people were putting their badges and guns on the table and saying, we're not going to work with this guy anymore. So it was really broken and beyond the point of repair. So now we're in a difficult position because he's never been given the opportunity to sort of right his wrongs and change, but the damage is so deep that it can't be repaired. So that's when I had to get involved. And I basically said, look, 
I am so sorry that we didn't give you the feedback that you deserved earlier. But I don't see how changing roles or any amount of effort will get us out of where we're at today. It's broken and cannot be fixed. So what I'm going to do is give you um, a ridiculous severance package because we're going to blindside you and end your employment here today. And I don't believe in blindsiding. This is our mistake. I don't believe your family should be blindsided. We should have given you this feedback. Our leadership was lazy. We fell short. So because we can't fix this, it has to end, but we're going to take care of you and your family uh, for an extended period of time until you can find a new job. And so that's a, a really transparent, how it really goes down sometimes where we made the mistake, we could have done better, we didn't lead, um, and we did blindside one of our employees, um, but we did our best to honor the principle of fairness. Um, and I think what it achieves ultimately is people don't do their best work in a culture of fear. If everyone is afraid they're going to lose their job or not get their bonus or how their peers are thinking about them, it ends up that they play defense the whole time. And you want people to play offense, to take big, bold risks, to be passionate contributors. And no one does that in a culture of fear. So the problem with blindsiding people in a termination process is it strikes a culture of fear in all the survivors. Everyone who stays back is like, ooh, I could be fired anytime for no reason and given no opportunity to change course, which of course is not fair. And people want to work in a fair workplace. So anyways, that's a long-winded example of- That's a good one though. How, that is how we think unique. about that. that. That is truly unique. And uh, when you think about human resources within a company, um, when is the right time to start building that muscle within an organization? How many employees should be at the company? When do you hire your first head of recruiting, your head of talent? Uh, how do you think about human resources in general? Well, so I also have a contrarian view on this. And maybe it doesn't work in the heart of Silicon Valley where you've got a talent war. So I, I say that as a disclaimer. But we believe in what I would call a... Um, deconcentrated human resource model. So I think what most companies do is they hire a head of HR, a head of talent um, that sits on the leadership team and is responsible for recruiting, onboarding, hiring, uh, maybe ongoing training, uh, maybe even overseas through the leadership team, um, you know, performance reviews and compensation adjustments and everything becomes very centralized. What we try and do at Stance is decentralize it. So it's not that we don't believe in HR. We just believe that the best HR leaders should be the leaders themselves. So who better than to do recruiting than the leader themselves? Who better than to do training than the leader themselves? Um, who better than to make a compensation adjustment than the leader themselves? So. My idea is, look, we're going to put a bigger burden on our leadership team because we want people that can be HR experts in their own right. So we do have a central HR function for things like benefits administration and helping coordinate all of these functions. But the primary responsibility to execute them is at the leadership level. And so that's how we're different. 
Um, so our HR department, uh, by comparison to other companies, is very, very small. But the HR burden is decentralized and, and stays at the leadership level. And do you have a philosophy around compensation? You know, this is uh, here in Silicon Valley, definitely a war for talent. And we've seen a number of entrepreneurs do um, what we consider some pretty crazy things to attract and recruit uh, talent into the company. Um, do you have a Do you have a strict philosophy around compensation? You know, I think when you're small, compensation ends up being a practical thing, which is sort of how much did you make before you got here? And how much does the company need to pay to successfully onboard and recruit this person? And that's typically what you do. And eventually, as you get to like 100 people, you have to start standardizing things. And I think as you get bigger, it becomes even more standardized. But I do believe um, occasionally employees make enormous contributions. Maybe not even occasionally, maybe frequently. And the best thing that you can do is instantly reward those things. And there's lots of ways to do that, right? Compensation, it's not just cash, but it's also bonus. It can be incentives. It's stock option awards, of course. Um, one story that stands out to me, one of my board members shared with me that he has a neighbor. And she was in sales at a big software company. And every year at the Christmas party, he would say, hey, the neighborhood Christmas party, how are you doing? She would say, we're doing great. We just got back from our president's club trip to Hawaii or whatever it was. And his view was always, you know, the most important thing to her was that she and her husband got to participate in this amazing trip. And that that actually became a more meaningful part of her compensation psychologically than any of the rest of the comp stack. And so as we think about comp at Stance, I try and get people to think highly creatively. I really like it when it happens. Um, it doesn't always happen. My proudest comp moment at Stance would be one of our early employees had worked with us for many years. She's still here, a fantastic contributor. And I noticed that she drove kind of a rundown old Audi. And it had like dents in the fenders. And I even looked and her tires were bald. And she clearly didn't care about her car or didn't want to put the money in to, to maintain it. So we had a trade show. And while she was gone, I got the keys from her boyfriend. And I took the car to the body shop and I had all the dents fixed. I had it completely detailed. I put new tires on. I had the car wow. serviced at the out dealership and we brought it back. And the whole bill was like three or $4,000, but it looked like a brand new car. And she cried. Wow. Right. And so it's finding these unexpected things on your team and now you might say, well, geez, how does a big company with thousands of employees do that? Well, the big company doesn't. It relies on a leader somewhere in the organization that has 10 or 12 direct reports that knows what their team will appreciate and goes in and does that one thing. Um, so we've done, you know, angels tickets for someone that loves the angels or a wine tasting trip for someone that loves the wine country. It's the idea that it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a small thing so long as it's personal and it's appreciated 
And those things go a lot longer than any cash or bonus because it's personal, it's memorable, and other companies are too bureaucratic to operate that way. Mm. So we're always sort of searching for these one-off random ways to say thank you to people that do great work and to do it in real time, not wait for the end of the year. And I think we have a number of examples of that. I mean, we've done this now dozens of times or hundreds of times. Um, And, you know, it gives people, it becomes part of the story of the company. It gives people something to talk about. They're like, do you remember the time that they did this? And, you know, like, geez, that's what makes work fun. Yeah. So I think um, having flexible compensation and the ability to give random awards that matter in real time is more important than, hey, we pay to the 75th percentile. Um, Being thoughtful about people is what matters. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. You know, I think this this interview today, you know, is timely. You know, I think culture, the the topic of culture uh, within Silicon Valley, within the tech community, is top of mind for everyone. Uh, so I think your insights here are extremely valuable. Uh, and just wrapping up, are there any uh, words of wisdom that you'd want to pass along to the next gen entrepreneur who is uh, the audience of this podcast um, that you think could be beneficial for? beneficial for them? Look, I think for me, the greatest learning in business and maybe what made Stance special was in my previous businesses, I was really architecting everything towards an outcome. You know, that's the whole point, right? Silicon Valley venture capitalists invest, they have 10-year life funds, they expect a return at some point. And so you sort of get in this mindset of I'm building something to sell or I'm building something to take public. At some point, there needs to be a recapitalization. And it ends up just being sort of a hustle to make money. And if you get a really fantastic product market fit, you get the growth and all of that sort of plays out. But I think more often than not, it in retrospect, it ends up being... Um, less enjoyable than it could or should. And maybe it's work advice, maybe it's life advice, but I think the advice is that you really do need to enjoy every minute. And for me, Stance, I didn't start Stance to make money. And it's easy for me to say because I had already had an outcome, so it really could be the secondary or tertiary motivation. But I started it because I wanted a place that I could go to during the day where I would be stimulated by good-natured, hardworking, ambitious people. And there'd be stimulating conversations. I would learn things. Um, and we could you know, build something fun. And so as you hear all those words, none of them have to do with money. And so as a result, if you said, hey, is Stamps successful? I would say, yeah, we're successful because every day when we come to work, we learn something, we're challenged, we love each other's company, we become better people because we work with great people. Like those are our benchmarks for success, not an arbitrary growth rate or amount of money we make. Yes, we make money. In fact, I might argue that 
we've grown faster or made more money um, than we otherwise would have because of the primary motivation being let's build something great. So my, my advice, it's, it's simple. It's just, you got to enjoy the process. You can't just optimize everything for an outcome. Enjoy every single day and make it great. If it's not that, I think you wake up five, seven, 10 years later with a pile of money and 10 years of your life wasted. Well, you've had a, an amazing journey, my friend, and uh, it's been fun to, to watch along the way. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. Really appreciate it. Well, Jordan, always good to speak with you and uh, see you. And thanks for having me. Hopefully I don't bore all of your listeners. No, I think this is going to be a, a great, a great podcast. Thank you for your time, Jeff. Thank you.